From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. All right, welcome to Friday. It is EWTN Open Line, where your questions are welcome. Happy Veterans Day for those uh, that are maybe getting some extra time off, but uh, also thank you to our veterans as well uh, for your service and your hearts. Uh, if you want to, of course, get set for a great conversation, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. And Friday's host always, Colin Donovan. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, I am. Any big plans for the weekend? No, just the usual family stuff, keeping busy and doing the chores and, and all of that. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned a veter- veterans. As a veteran myself, I think uh, it's something to, uh, you know, to recognize. I, I always used to love what John Paul II had to say to veterans. They would, I remember when I was living in Rome, uh, the, usually it was, it was U.S. Uh, Navy typically, but also other allied countries in Europe and that. Uh, they would come together and they would have congresses and meetings in Rome and Naples and different places. And there was always a message for them because he recognized that their role is to preserve peace, mm-hmm. that this was the principal role and that was a that was a wonderful role to fulfill. And obviously it, the downside of that is that sometimes you had to intervene in order to preserve the peace or to protect the peace uh, or to uh, withstand aggressive nations and countries and so on, but uh, the spiritual values that he he proposed to those who, who served in the military and continued that role today as in the past uh, were always very uplifting and encouraging, and uh, uh, I think that's probably an area of John Paul, everybody talks about his theology, mm-hmm. but I bet that's an area that hasn't been greatly explored. Yeah. Well, thank you for your service as well. So we You're appreciate welcome. you. All right. Let's jump into emails today. As again, the phone lines are open at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Outside North America, 1-205-271-2985. As uh, Jeff is asking, he says, I've returned to the Catholic faith after 40 years. After going to confession, I began attending Mass and uh, receiving communion. However, I'm married in the Anglican Church uh, during a time away uh, with my high school sweetheart. She remains Anglican. Should I stop receiving communion until I receive a radical sanction? Well, uh, I guess that usually the complexities of that are something can't be sorted out on the radio, for starters. If you, uh, two people who are not Catholic, who marry outside the church with the intentions for which God instituted marriage, they're married. The church doesn't challenge that. It makes a rule uh, for Catholics that they must be married for, before the church to guarantee the, the intentions and therefore the validity of, of why they unite in marriage. So all, all of that is sort of the superstructure that would have to be looked at to see. If you, if you made a, ma- a valid marriage even outside the church, there is no question of, uh, of needing anything to make that correct. If you made a, a marriage outside of the church as a Catholic who's, who 
did not marry according to the Catholic form, in other words, with the dispensation of the church to marry before an Anglican minister or, or whatever the particular circumstance was, then yes, there would be a question of validity, but that's easily resolved. You just take it to the diocese, and he, he talked about radical sanation, which is the name for that. Uh, that can easily be done. It means basically going back and doing what should have been done you know, 10, 20 years ago, whenever it was you got married without the dispensation of the church. That's easy, easy enough to do. So in one, one sense, you are validly married, but in that canonical sense, you are not. And so I think the answer is to refrain from marital relations, get that taken care of, and then uh, you're healed at the root as the, as the saying, as the expression goes. Uh, so that is to consider, if you have all the facts, ask yourself the question, uh, was I a Catholic? Did I marry outside the church? Then you do need to have that dis dispensation uh, done retroactively. Uh, if you were not, and you were both were free to marry, you are married. If you are both baptized, you have sacramental marriage and not just a natural marriage. Uh, and then there's, there's nothing then that has to be done. Excellent. Great question. Uh, again, if you'd like to jump in, this is EWTN Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. As we uh, hang out with Scott, he is a first-time caller listening on Covet Radio Network. Hey, Scott, what's your question for Colin? Um, I work in the field for nuclear science, and so I look at the formation of the universe from a scientific point of view, but I'm also a um, pretty strict Catholic, um, and sometimes I find it hard separating my faith from the scientific side of things. Sure, yeah. And I believe God created the Earth as well. So can you help me how I can separate the two from interacting with my faith? Well, uh, I, I will propose this, and then with some details. In the 1950s, there was a um, there was a Pontifical Academy of Science meeting in Rome on the subject of cosmogenesis. This is the very area in science. Cosmology would be the typical word that would be used uh, today. So you think of cosmogenesis and then Genesis, the book of the Genesis. And Pope Pius XII gave a wonderful address, which is in EWTN's online library, in which he praised the work of the scientists, already speaking of the billions of years of formation and the various material processes that took place, because it talked about the vastness and the greatness and the wonderfulness of God. There is no conflict between the Church's understanding of the book of Genesis as a book written uh, in the literal sense, meaning according to the mentality of the day and the cosmology of the day, conveying a religious meaning such as was meant for the people, uh, to the audience, because the writer, the sacred writer, is the human writer whose knowledge is limited to what he knows unless God gives him some infused insight, which he doesn't always do. Obviously, the prophets had that, but even that was not full. The prophecies of the Messiah were not complete and total statements of what would happen, but hints of that. A virgin shall conceive without a lot of the details, and then history itself fills in the details. Yeah, I think you'll be very wonderfully surprised and moved by what Pius XII had to say to the cosmologists back in the 1950s. 
The other part of it is answered by the second thing that I said, and that is the literal meaning does not mean the meaning as a 21st century individual would have of the meaning of those words in the in the historical context of our day, but rather in, as I said, the writer uses his words, his knowledge to say something in which God, by his inspiration, without taking away his freedom, is also conveying something profoundly deep to them. And, you know, the deepest thing in, in uh, Genesis is the first war- words. Let there be light. Light is energy. And what do the cosmologists say? The primitive universe was extremely high energy, which as it cooled, as it were, like water with sugar in it, precipitated out the various forces and, and, and particles and so on which make up the material universe, which then followed the rules which God imbued in, those, in the force of nature by creating it. And that's the way the church would look at it today. That's the way the Vatican astronomers who work in, in observatories in Arizona and Chile and Hawaii and other places the Vatican's own observatory is perhaps the oldest in the world, going back to the development of the Gregorian calendar in the 1500s. So the Church has no trouble reconciling uh, Genesis with science because it sees that each discipline has its own language, its own method, and the job is of the, of the Christian is to integrate all of that knowledge because the author of all of it is ultimately God. So if it can be integrated in the mind of God, we can get some glints of how that would work by attempting that ourselves to see how theology, faith, of course, uh, philosophy, and science make an integral whole and understanding of the world which God created. Excellent. Thanks so much, Scott, and thanks for listening to Covet Radio Network. As uh, we take your calls, that now frees up a line at 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. And again, if you're outside North America, 1-205-271-2985. We've got a question from Michelle, which I'm going to ask, give you some time to think about it, and we'll come back after the break. Uh, But she says, I've been thinking about soul and human sides. I know that when we die, we go to heaven. What happens to the human side? So we'll answer that coming up after the break. Again, you can reach us today for Open Line Friday uh, with Colin Donovan. And again, 833-288-EWTN. Thanks for hanging out with us this afternoon. Again, happy Veterans Day weekend. More with your calls coming up. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. 
It is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan, and now that you know the numbers, also be thinking as you call in with your question about maybe being an EWTN media missionary. Uh, prayerfully take EWTN to parishes and the community through print and electronic media. You can find out more at EWTNmissionaries.com. And uh, speaking of emails, of course, uh, we uh, asked mm-hmm. this question, Michelle did, uh, before the break through email, and uh, so we revisit it. Uh, she's been thinking about souls and the human side. When we die... Uh, I know what happens to our souls, but what happens to our human self? Uh, We can't divide the two because our human self is body and soul. We, unlike the animals, we are a composite creature. And unlike the angels, the angels are pure spirits. Animals are pure matter. We are matter and spirit. The spiritual side of man, we give the common name to, to soul. Uh, and that and that comes from uh, the Greek work. The same word uh, gives us psychic and psyche and all the, those kinds of psychiatry and so on. Uh, basically, the mind. The mind, the intellectual side of man by which he can know things and will things. And that distinguishes us from other creatures. So when we die, the soul is uh, indestructible. It's spirit. It's indestructible. It's immaterial. Uh, it survives, and this is what will uh, survive uh, wherever the, the, the destiny of the soul takes it, to heaven or to hell, or to heaven by way of purgatory for purification uh, from uh, whatever little dust spots and blemishes the uh, remain of our attachment to sinful things. But th- that is what that survives, and that's where we that's where we know, that's where we will, that's where we decided for good or for bad during our life. That's where our reward for uh, life will principally be, and also our punishment, whether in seeing God or being uh, banished from His presence forever. Uh, so all of that is us. We are that. But yet, as human beings, we are not only that, we are our bodies, and that is promised back to us uh, at the resurrection. Uh, so that the self survives because our souls contain the essential personal, intellectual uh, side of us. Our bodies are material, and therefore they, uh, they break down, they become the original elements from which they came, or they may become other things, other parts of plants and animals, or even over long periods of time, uh, minerals and rocks and so on. But all of that's ir- irrelevant. God will raise us up on the last day, and our body and soul will be resurrected as Christ was on Easter Sunday. Excellent. Thanks so much. If, of course, you want to send an email, you can do that anytime, openline at EWTN.com. As we go to the phones, Sherry, first-time caller listening to Spirit Catholic Radio. Thanks for calling EWTN Open Line. What's your question for Colin? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I have a question about today's gospel. The gospel reading was about the servant who was going to be dismissed, mm-hmm. and he went to his employer's uh, creditors, and he reduced the debt. I can see why the creditors like that, <laughs> but wouldn't his employer be a little unhappy with him? It seems like he's losing out. Well, of course he was, and uh, he, but the man knew that the steward knew that he was to be dismissed anyway. So he was looking out for his future, and so therefore he used his position of authority as long as he had it, 
you know, to sort of uh, grease the skids into a new job when his boss uh, finally dismissed him, which is, we presume, uh, what what would have happened in the story. It was probably not a true thing. Our Lord created it as a parable and told it as a parable. But we'd see that as the consequence, that he was on his way to being fired. So the Lord is not crediting his dishonesty, but rather his shrewdness. Remember, elsewhere we're told that the children of this world are shrewder, cleverer than the children of of heaven, the children of God. Uh, That's because they are very good at working out their own future in this material world without regard for morality and spiritual considerations. And so we are, we're advised to be as clever as them, but according to the truth, be wise as serpents and as clever and as gentle as doves. So we should have their prudential judgment, their foresight, their uh, perspicacity is a word you don't hear very often, but that means their, their, their quickness of thinking of what they need to do in order to make things work out well. We need that as well, but we need to do it in an honest, moral way according to the truth. So that's the difference between the children of the world and the children of God. And so, but this is an element where he's, 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 uh, he's applauding his shrewdness, even though in the overall picture, the morality was uh, questionable at best and most likely unjust. Excellent question. Thanks so much for your time. We're going to go to Atlanta, Georgia, and check in with Sean, listening on EWTN.com. Sean, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. I'm struggling with um, what came out of the Vatican yesterday about transgenders. They can, you know, be baptized, witnesses at weddings. But I'm really Mm -hmm. having a problem with a godparent because I teach, you know, baptism class, and I saw something with CNA. CNA that said a godparent can be anyone who possesses the aptitude and who leads a life of faith in keeping with the function to be taken on. And the other part it said, I really don't understand, it says a homosexual person living not in a simple cohabitation, but in a stable and declared more U-X-O-R-I-O, in the manner of husband and wife, well recognized by the community is a different case. So what does that mean? well, uh, yuxor means refers to the marital situation or a bond that exists. I, I think there's a good deal to be explained in that respect. Right now, the canonical norms require that that the person be a practicing Catholic in, in terms of sponsorship, since that seemed to be the root of where you uh, want where interest was. In sponsorship, you think maybe a, a, of the of the principle that. Most things are best decided at the lower level. In Generally, we hear this as subsidiarity, that you make laws and things and decisions closest to where the decision is to be made. And so the general law of the Church, which is what canon law is and, and what uh, is being uh, promulgated here as a practice, the general law of the Church generally is going to leave those matters to the individual case. So rather than singling out one group of eligible people and another group of ineligible people, it only mentions who is eligible, and that is those who are practicing, you know, Catholics and uh, uh, I forget the exact language there. But anyway, it it suggests that anyone who is living in a disingenuous state of life, belonging to the mafia maybe, or... Uh, 
you know, notable criminals or, or, or some other state of life, that there will be people who would be ineligible based on the current norms of not living, uh, not living, uh, being a good practice, practicing Catholic. So I think most of most of those things are simply devolving from Rome making a decision to where the law already has it. When somebody comes forward and says, "I want to be baptized." Surely in the course of their, you know, what is now called the OCIA, which was used to be the RCIA, you're learning about the teachings of the church, you're learning about the morality, and you are probably asking your question and the self the question, and the catechist should be doing it as well. Can I adhere to what I am being heard? Do I believe what the church is teaching? Can I, as a human person, morally live this faith which I am undertaking. And I'm presuming, not being a priest myself, that that question also in any interviews about preparedness and fittingness for, you know, when somebody says, I would like to be baptized, those questions would be asked as well. So I, I think the general situation hasn't changed very much. And that is what would be done pastorally or what ought to be done, not that what ought to be done is always done, but what ought to be done is each case treated on an individual level as the person who comes forward to be baptized or a person who is proposed as a sponsor, you know, as to whether they meet the categories which the church has already established, which includes not just one kind of grave sin, but all kinds of grave sins and living according to that lifestyle as being ineligible. So I don't think you single out one, one group of people. And I think that's what is trying to be avoided here. Now, I have to admit, I'll have to go back and read that thing about the categories. Um, you know, I think some explanation probably has to be forthcoming on that because I think it w gives the wrong impression of something beyond what I have said here. And that is that, well... There are these other cases which we envision that could be accepted, even though, by most people's standards, this would not be uh, would not be acceptable. And so I think that would need some explanation. And uh, I would say I don't understand it either, but we'll ponder it, and maybe by next week I'll have something to say on it. I don't know. Maybe not. Very good. Maybe I won't know any more than I know today. All right. <laughs> Sean, we appreciate your question. Thanks so much for listening. As uh, we head to California, Linda is uh, hanging out and listening uh, to SiriusXM. Linda, what's your question for Colin Donovan? Hi, thank you, Colin. Uh, my question has to do with our God's permissive versus providential will. Um, from listening to uh, Mother Angelica, I understand those two wills, and he knows, of course, everything and sees everything. Um, I guess my did we lose Linda? Yeah. All right. So okay, we'll try to get her back on. Yeah, I I, I think I have enough to yeah, address enough. the yep. question. Um, that's that's tip. That's not typical Catholic language. I, I notice here that the uh, the call screener had written down the perfect will. I think that comes from a more Protestant, maybe even just a Catholic charismatic perspective. These aren't generally theological terms that are, are used. So the church says that 
the eternal will the the eternal law is impressed upon our nature impressed upon the world and therefore our our job in life is going to be to discover what that is now, part of that is the natural law, when we talk about things that constitute the natural law, the, the Ten Commandments in terms of, you know, you thou shalt not kill, all of these things we can find a natural law basis, and that is in our creatureliness, our creatureliness tells us, you know, I want to live, therefore I shouldn't be killing you either. Mm-hmm. That's the natural law way of doing it. But ultimately behind that is the eternal law. And so those are the, that's the distinction we want to investigate here. The different kinds of law which represent the will of God, and the eternal law would be the, the larger expression, and then we can take it from there in terms of uh, other categories. All right. Thanks so much, Linda. We appreciate your question. We've got time to take your call again for EWTN Open Line Friday, 833-288-3986. We'll be back in just a bit. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Of course, it's a chance for you to call in at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. I'm Ace McKay in for Jack Williams. As our show team is officially in place, Michael, Matt, and Jeff ready to help answer your questions as we head into our Veterans Day weekend. Also, something to think about, especially for our friends at Annunciation Radio. Uh, That's Annunciation Radio. I should learn to enunciate, and it'll come out (laughs) a lot easier. Um, Airing this next week, uh, starting Tuesday, their fall share kicks off, so they have five Five stations across North Northern Ohio. Uh, support EWT and Catholic Radio and keep them in your prayers this week. As we, of course, are ready to take your call, you can do that 833-288-EWTN. Veronica is listening to Spirit Catholic Radio in Council Bluffs. Uh, how's it going, Veronica? What's your question for Colin? Hi, it's going well. My question is, were Eliza and Moses taken into heaven body? and soul. Um, they appeared at the Transfiguration, says that Elijah was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot, mm-hmm. and I was just wondering if they are their body and soul in addition to Jesus and Mary, or if that's something different. They, they are not, because they have not died. That's quite clear from the scriptural accounts themselves. And so the fathers of the, of the church, when uh, trying to discern who the two witnesses are in the book of Revelation, for example, be- believe uh, that Elijah and uh, Enoch, actually, uh, are, are, the, are the two. Moses was, died and was buried on a mountain uh, in, the Jordan, in the Jordan River Valley. Uh, and uh, that will be discovered toward the end of the world is the conclusion that, uh, that some have drawn. Uh, that place, of, and also the Ark of the Covenant is there on that same mountain. Uh, it's not buried in the desert in Egypt to be found by Indiana Jones. So uh, when you hear that, uh, know that we don't know where it is, but it's presumably was taken to uh, the mount where Moses was across the Jordan from the Holy of Israel and buried there. So uh, Elijah and Enoch, the two that uh, are not shown to have died in Scripture, they were taken up and they are reserved for the end of the world. So they are in some place, slant state, uh, all within the possibility of God, which is neither our earth or heaven. 
And at the end of the world, uh, they will return, and then they will die to be killed by the Antichrist in Jerusalem. So that is out in the future. Then, having been killed, they will rise, because when Christ returns in glory, we will all, those who are alive, will be all transformed and taken up, and those who are dead will all rise. So that will, uh, that's reserved for the end. As far as we know, our Lord and Our Lady are the only uh, two in heaven. Uh, the assumption, of course, is a dogma of the Church. Um, subsidiary to that is the opinion that the, the Pope did not confirm it with the kind of dogmatic language uh, he used for the assumption itself. I'm speaking of Pius XII. But he pointed to the tradition that she died, but that rather than rising, she was assumed. And she had a peaceful death. The apostles were around her is what the tradition has generally taught. So we all must die. This is appointed to all of us to do. Our Lord did it on our behalf. Our Lady did it. Uh, and Elijah and Enoch will do it at the end. Moses uh, already has, as, as I noted, is buried on, on the mountain in uh, Jordan. All right, Veronica, thanks so much for your question. We appreciate it. That frees up a line, 833-288-3986. Well, we did have the will question, too. Hmm. If you want to get the numbers, and then I'll, I'll okay. dive into that one. 833-288-3986. <laughs> That's 833-288-EWTN. I will let you continue. Yeah, and the question had to do with the ordained uh, will of God, his perfect will, some of these other term providential will, some of these other... Uh, other ter terms that are used. So God has one will. That's quite queer, uh, quite clear. Um, and so that will is love. That's the name we give to the will act of God. This is the name we give to the intellectual act of God is the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And so the Holy Spirit is the soul of the church today and the spirit of love. And so we are always looking to recover the implications of, in the created world, of God's willing the world into existence. And so the Church uses different terms for that. For instance, in the moral law, Aquinas and others talked about the, the moral law is simply the, the eternal will of God, adhering to the eternal will of God. How do we know it? Well, we can know it through created things. And then we start talking about the natural law, the will of creatures to exist. Fulton Sheen used to say Christ was the only, the only creature, the only person who came into the world to die. When creatures have uh, received life through their, through their parents, of whatever category of creature you are, it's to live. And you will live until you die, and no one wants to die. So we have innate innate trajectories, innate impulses and instincts in us that cause us to perpetuate ourselves, and the sexual instinct is to perpetuate the species. So we do hear a lot around those things, protecting of life, protecting mora sexual morality, because those are the two most profound instincts in the human being, and those are the ones very closely related to the natural law because they're so profound and deep in us. But everything else that can be said about the moral law and the Ten Commandments, for example, especially the, the last seven dealing with our behavior towards each other, uh, can be taken from that. Now, in his governance of the world, 
Of course, one of the things he did, he created the world, but he sustains the world. And in his sustaining of the world, we can speak of his sustaining uh, human acts as well, because we don't do anything without God's will being in us. Our powers come from God. So there's a level which is at which God, by giving us powers to do things, to do good, also gave us the power to do evil. So how do we distinguish between acts which are done according to the mind of God that are good or contrary to the mind of God which are evil? They still, we take God's participation into those and therein comes the insult to God. We talk about the innate sinfulness of God. It's because not only has God given us a law we should not break, but also because he's given us the powers to keep that law and we break it nonetheless. So that's when we get into the morality of different kinds of things. In terms of God's ordaining will, obviously he wills us to be good, not to be evil. In terms of the evil that we do, obviously his providence permits it. And so some speak of the permissive will of God, that God ordains us to do certain things, do good and avoid evil, you know, to, you know, treat your neighbor as yourself, all the things you could say that Christ asked us to do as well, as well as in the Old Covenant. He, and he tells us not to do things, and, but he permits those things. He doesn't wipe us out just because we do them. So that's the main distinction. We're trying to either correspond to the eternal will of God expressed in multiple ways, expressed in the laws of nature, expressed in the laws of church, of the church for Catholics, expressed in the civil laws of, of governments insofar as they are just in accord with God's laws. But also he permits the evil that good may come of it. And so we can't ever speak of his permitting will uh, as approving of evil, but only that he has tolerated for existence because of the ignorance of people. He tolerated the polygamy of the Jews for a time. He tolerated divorce among the Jews for the time until the Son of God stood up on a mountain in Galilee. But I say to you, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And the permission was withdrawn. And now we are asked to fulfill the eternal law, one man, one woman. So there you get sort of the outline of the different ways you can describe corresponding to the will of God simply by, by living, just if you live well, of course there's a correspondence there, but especially morally by doing the, what you know to be the will of God, so that your mind and your heart, your will, are in correspondence with the eternal law of God, expressed in the realities created by God, the natural realities and the supernatural realities. Uh, so God permits a lot. And we can understand that. I remember the, the, um, the fuss that was created, I think, when the Pope went to Cairo and he was at a, uh, a meeting of Muslim and other leaders there. The cops, I believe, and others were there. Uh, the Ethio or Egyptian uh, Christians, you know, and he said that God wills all religions. Well, there's a way to understand that in Catholic theology, and eventually they corrected that. Well, he permits the other religions. Uh, but, he, but the basic point is there, that God's providence has brought, allowed, tolerated things to come about, 
The fathers even church uh, of the church even saw that even in things which are full of error and erroneous and not the 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 path to God willed by God Himself, the eternal the eternal will of the eternal law, can have the seeds of the word. In other words, be dispositive, disposing and preparing people. So the pagan religions the fathers saw in there there are many things there that uh, disposed ones to accept the gospel. In fact, the gospel was born into and succeeded in a pagan world. But there are other elements there, say, of Roman law and Greek thinking, which were also very helpful. So we don't simply say truth and error, because sometimes those who hold many things in error also have seeds of the word which only need to be watered and grown and flattered until they burst into fruit. And that's the way the church looks at things. So uh, you really have to take every situation and every characterization of something and go deeper into it and see what will of God are we talking about? Is it perfect conformity to his eternal will expressed in nature and supernature? In other words, in the natural law and in the church and her life and, and practices and so on? Uh, or is it something he's tolerating until it can be brought to fruit, to bloom, to grace, to truth. And he's done a lot of that over the millennia. You only need to look at history and see much he is, how much he has tolerated in view of the coming of Christ and even since Christ came, tolerated in view of the perfection of that coming towards the end of the world and the, the fullness of truth he promised to the apostles, the ma- full maturation in Christ that St. Paul talked about, All of these things are always a work in progress, and eventually we get there with his grace, with his truth, and his help. Excellent. Uh, If you'd like to call in, this is EWTN Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. As we go to MJ, a first-time caller in Cheyenne, Wyoming, listening on Catholic Radio Network. MJ, what's your question for Colin? Okay, when a person dies and they're cremated, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering... Uh, what happens to when during the resurrection when everyone is uh, when when Christ comes again and raises everyone body and soul? So, uh, what happens to the cremated people? Okay, it will be as easy for God to make their bodies as it will be to the person who died 500 years ago, whose bodies are now parts of plants and animals, and even other people who have eaten plants and animals. Mm. Uh, we think in terms of particular molecules, uh, I think, and actually modern science, I think, illuminates this question by showing us, uh, and philosophy does too, because we are, we are what Aquinas and, and the philosophers would call composite beings. In other words, we have a name for the whole, man, body and soul, but we can also describe the parts, so the body and the soul. Mm-hmm. The whole is the, per- the so- this body and the soul. With science today, we can get into, well, carbs and proteins. We could talk about uh, particular atoms. We could even talk about subatomic particles and, uh, and other things if we wanted to. But we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that all of those have little numbers on them and they have to be put back together in a certain order for it to be us. Now, we, our material nature will decay from, you know, thou art man and from dust you came and to dust you will go. So that material nature will go, whether it's cremated, whether the body is put whole in the ground, whether the body is lost in an accident or natural catastrophe or death at sea or or whatever. That's immaterial to God. 
uh, because uh, what we are is more than the composition of just our particular molecules, our particular, you know, bones and teeth and all of that stuff. Uh, it's, it's the deeper part of us, and that being is of no difficulty for God to resume, uh, put back together at the end of the world. So we need have no fear for our created brethren. The church only forbids it today if it's done in contempt of the doctrine of the resurrection, as at the Enlightenment this idea was inculcated that, well, by cremating yourself, you can show your disdain for this Christian idea of the resurrection. If that's your reason, the church says, you know, we won't bury you. If it isn't your reason, uh, then fine. Cost is the reason for many people, the simplicity of it. Uh, Not to be put on the mantle, however, that's not allowed. Uh, Put in a sacred place, in a, you know, columbarium or in the cemetery. Uh, But other than that, at the end, God will find us in in all of our parts and put us back together uh, as he envisioned us, Mm. maybe not as nature necessarily provided. We shall be perfect, as the moral moral tradition or the theological tradition of the church says. There will be no suffering and no death. And uh, most of the theologians have spoken on say we will all be, regardless of whether we died as an infant or as an old man, we will all be the age which Christ was. Uh, when he walked the earth, about in the 30s, 33 years of age or thereabout. Perfect perfect perfection of our adulthood, uh, but now not just bodily, but morally as well. So you're saying no crow's feet or gray hair in heaven? Exactly. Okay. Oh, you know. Getting the clarity. I've I've crossed that boundary, so (laughs) (laughs) I'll be happy. Well, maybe not tomorrow, but I'll be happy at some point to be there. (laughs) That's excellent. Uh, This is EWTN Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan, 833-288-EWTN. And, of course, if you want to replay or check out the Encore tonight, uh, you can do so 10 Eastern on EWTN Radio. You can listen on demand and play it for your friends or re-listen to parts that uh, you just want to understand better. Uh, Go to EWTN.com slash radio and uh, you can find us there anytime and take us wherever you go. Uh, We're going to jump into the email bag. This kind of seems to be the theme today. A lot Mm. of physical body type questions but um, uh, coming from Frank in Missouri he says since Jesus has a physical body this implies that he is physically somewhere right now. He brought the spiritual down into our physical realm but hasn't he also brought physical existence into the spiritual realm of heaven? He has. That's why in the creed we say sits at the right hand of the Father. The idea of sitting, of Christ, body and soul, sitting at the right hand of the Father is a little bit of a, you know, gives us an image more than it gives us a reality as if there's a throne room. But we're humans, and he lets us express things. So it's very interesting if you go to any of the old churches, this is a practice that goes back to the like the 4th and 5th centuries, In the sanctuary above the main altar, there is always an apocalypse. In other words, it's God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Christ on the throne, Our Lady, John the Baptist, John the Apostle. And and very often on through history, you will find representations of fathers of the church or particular theologians like Aquinas or 
or I'm sure Franciscan churches have Bonaventure and Francis and Claire and others. So you get this idea of the throne room of heaven. There's a great there's the great painting of Raphael, which is in this in the um, uh, Apostolic Palace in Rome. If you go on the Sistine Chapel tour, it goes through the Vatican Museum, and in one of the rooms are. Most of the rooms, there's Raphael and other great artists who painted them during the Middle Ages. But in one particular one, there is the the exposition of the Eucharist, and it shows the philosophers debating the Eucharist, and it shows the saints and the angels and uh, adoring the Eucharist. So church, you know, church and creation together adoring, you know, God made man present in the Holy Eucharist. So there's some beautiful representations of this reality, bodily reality of heaven. Uh, the Father is sometimes represented as an old man, but that's for our benefit, not the way it is. It's artistic. Uh, but uh, our Lord is there. And uh, maybe not with their bodies. This is uh, would seem not to be the case. But when we say he descended into hell, on, on the third day he rose again from the dead, the hell there is means the essentially what we we would call limbo. We think of it mostly with the baptized, but the fathers spoke of the limbo of the patriarchs. All of the just of the old law, indeed going back beyond the Mosaic law to Adam and Eve, who the church considers to be in God, in heaven, and all of those holy people down to the time of Christ and all of the holy people since then. But he went down to the dead, the place of the dead, Sheol, and there he would have seen again his cousin John, his foster father Joseph, the patriarchs, King David, whose descendant he was, and so on. And even the father and mother of our, of our nat race, naturally, Adam and Eve. So they aren't in heaven as, with bodies as far as we know. Uh, but our Lord is and our Lady is. And some saints, including St. Francis de Sales, have suggested that St. Joseph might be there as well. But we don't know that, and so the church doesn't teach that. But uh, that thought, some have had that thought. It's a pious thought, mm. uh, but it's certainly not the teaching of the church. But we know at least two are there in their bodies. Thanks, Frank, for your email. Of course, if you want to send yours, you can do so open line at EWTN.com, as Michelle has done. And she says, uh, Mr. Donovan, uh, at the end of Mass, the priest told us that God has promised us that our loved ones are in heaven and that we will be in heaven as well. What do you think of this? Well, he certainly promised that our loved ones could be in heaven and that he gave us all the means on earth for them to be in heaven and for us to be in heaven. Uh, but it's a choice we make. Um, so I'm I'm not sure what he was thinking, but if he was speaking of some kind of universal salvation, that's not the teaching of the church. It's certainly not the teaching of Christ who spoke of the eternal destiny of evil uh, in the hell created by the by by God for the for the devil and his angels, uh, into which the damned will go when he speaks in the Matthew kingdom parables about the judgment at the end. There is, a, there, is a, there is a place for those who have embraced evil in their life, uh, Satan and his followers first, and those human beings who, who uh, comply with his lies and his, his ways. So I, that's not founded in Scripture. It's not founded in tradition. So I guess he's pulling that out of somewhere else. 
unless he has a different meaning. So I would ask him what his meaning was. Mm. All right. Uh, Pat also sending in an email says, what is required in order to become a saint of the church? I guess you mean a canonized saint. Um, To become a saint of the church, all you got to do is die in the state of grace Mm. from that point of view. Um, because there are many more saints than those who are canonized by the church, in order to point out their witness as martyrs, uh, and even the martyrs' uh, witness in virtue. In the early church, the saints were generally considered the martyrs, because the standard was the imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ. They imitated him in their life, they imitated him in his death. They died for him. When the age of martyrdom ended, well, what happens to the imitatio Christi? Well, there could be the imitation of a white martyrdom, a a virtue. And so the idea of heroic virtue. So when the church wants to consider a person, whether it's Mother Angelica someday or somebody take, you know, Pope John Paul or Padre Pio or somebody that's already canonized, what they consider is, did they live, live a life of holy virtue? And they analyze that in great detail. The theologians vote on it. Then it's given to the congregation, the cardinals and bishops. They vote on it. Then it's given to the pope, and he decides whether to decree that person has heroic virtue. That makes him a venerable. Then the appeal to God to put the stamp of his verification on it by a miracle. And the first miracle, they're named a blessed and the second miracle, they're named a saint, a canonized. So the church has a process both of reason and of, and of miracles, and these two go together, looking for the stamp of God on the decision of the church, and thereby the confirmation that this individual can be held up as a witness to all Christians, that this is a witness of the imitation of Christ, of following Christ. And the beauty of the thing today is that the church goes to pains to make sure that men and women, married, priests, religious, the different vocations, lawyers, nurses, doctors, all the different vocations, all the different morally good ways of life are represented so we can all, and now even teenagers, which also in in, uh, St. Acutus, Uh, also in the children of Fatima and others. These are held up as examples to us, and we can find somebody who more or less looks like us and lived a life like us and say, well, they became a saint. I can too. Excellent. Colin Donovan, always a guest, uh, always our host on Friday. So thank you so much for your time and your insights today. You're welcome. Of course, EWTN Open Line, Monday through Friday. And of course, you can join us again this Monday as uh, we love for you to jump back in and be a part of the conversation. Uh, you can find out more about us online, EWTN.com slash radio. That way you can check us out on demand. And then remember uh, the encore tonight, 10 o'clock Eastern on EWTN radio. On behalf of Jack Williams, I am Ace McKay, and he should be back next week. So look forward to that as well. And on uh, that note, our show team as well, we want to say thanks to Michael, Matt, and Jeff for making today possible. Remember to let God define who you are, and we'll see you Monday.